Welcome to season two of Talking Apes. I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and to kick off our second season of exploring the world of apes, I can think of no person more passionately committed to life on this planet as my next guest. Once asked to summarize his work, he said, I'm a naturalist by birth, a biologist by training, and a conservationist by necessity. My conversation this time on Talking Apes is with Ian Redman. But conservation for Ian isn't just about saving species. On a larger scale, he says, the planet needs us to save functioning ecosystems. On a smaller scale, we must also recognize that species are made up of individual animals. For me, it became personal when I had the privilege of getting to know individual wild animals in the wild. Those were wild mountain gorillas. Our conversation this time was ostensibly about the upcoming World Gorilla Day, September 24th. But as you will hear, Ian sees no species in isolation. Ultimately, our conversation pivoted to focus on the bigger picture, forests, their ecosystem services, and the role they play. And how keystone species like gorillas and forest elephants play a greater role than we ever imagined. Ian's list of accomplishments would run on for half our podcast, but here's just a hint of what he's been up to over the last few years. He's a tropical field biologist and conservationist, renowned for his work with great apes and elephants. For more than 35 years, he's been associated with the mountain gorillas through research, filming, tourism, and conservation work. He has served as ambassador to the United Nations Year of the Gorilla and to the United Nations Environmental Program for its Convention on Migratory Species since 2010. Ian is a conservation consultant and advisor for organizations such as Born Free Foundation, the Gorilla Organization, and the Orangutan Foundation. To encourage ape groups to work together, he established and chairs the Ape Alliance, a 95-member organization that works to ensure great ape survival. Ian was chief consultant and envoy to GRASP, the UN's Great Ape Survival Partnership, where he continues to consult on matters regarding apes, bushmeat, forests, and related issues. Most recently, he is the tri-founder of Rebalance Earth, a new blockchain carbon conservation initiative. Oh, and one last thing. Ian was one of our first guests on Talking Apes back in season one, so be sure to check out that podcast. And we found out in that one that he taught actress Sigourney Weaver how to grunt like a gorilla back in 1987 for her award-winning role in the film Gorillas in the Mist. Hi, Ian, and welcome to Talking Apes. It is great to have you on, especially since it's been about a year and a half since we've had a chance to say hello. It's been a busy uh, 18 months, but uh, until last week, I hadn't been anywhere from this desk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Apart from a few trips around the UK, but um, yeah, you catch me at a. My batteries have just been recharged by a, a week in Africa. Ah, where were you? Uh, in Gabon uh, for Africa Climate Week. So not a week in Africa in the forest, but we did get out into Pongara National Park um, after the conference had ended. But it was a gathering of all the negotiators from uh, across Africa, uh, organised by the UN Climate convention um, so that Africa has a, a, a common voice. Uh, this, this year's conference of the parties or COP, uh, up to COP27, after COP26 in Glasgow last year, uh, COP27 is being hosted by Egypt. Uh, so it is mm. being described as Africa's action COP because Africa wants the world to act 
on a lot of the things that have been promised over the years, but not yet delivered on. Was there a reason, specific reason it was in Gabon? Well, when when these uh, meetings are announced, countries volunteer. But I think Gabon has taken a leadership role in rallying the um, the idea that Africa's ecosystems are important to prevent dangerous climate change. And that whilst a lot of the talk in previous conferences has been the developing world asking for reparation, you know, Africa is a continent that did the least to contribute towards our current climate crisis, and yet is likely to suffer among the worst uh, areas. So the talk this time was was more, yes, that is true, and, and there, there needs to be a sort of a, a just reparation for the damage that's going to be done to this and future generations, um, but also the, the fact that Africa actually holds a solution to preventing dangerous climate change in the, its ecosystems, particularly the Congo Basin and, and Guinean rainforests, are still uh, carbon sinks, they're still absorbing carbon, whereas the changes that we've seen in the Amazon region, the deforestation, the roads, have led to that now being turning into a source of carbon. It's extraordinary to think that a forest that big might be um, emitting more greenhouse gases than it is absorbing them. But uh, the more roads you put in, the more farms you create out of forests, the less those forests can provide the ecosystem services that the world requires. And what's really interesting, I mean, unique in, in Gabon, is that the president appointed a British biologist as a minister of the environment, forests and seas. And so Professor Lee White, who knows his onions, as it were, <laughs> he is a, a highly regarded ecologist, has studied uh, elephants and gorillas and the role of, of uh, Gabon's forests. Uh, he's now the, the minister, which puts a very different light on things, because when he stands up and speaks, you know you have a very keen scientific mind and a decades of experience behind it. It's not a, a minister who's been briefed by people with such experience and is trying to remember the meaning of this or that term. But it is very unusual for a British biologist to be appointed to be a minister in a Francophone African country. <laughs> but Gabon's forests are, are being managed. Um, there is still some timber extraction, but um, Gabon now requires any company operating in, in timber concessions in, in Gabon to be up at FSC standard. That's the Forest Stewardship Council, which is a non-governmental initiative between NGOs and industry uh, to have sort of the gold standard of certification, independently verifying that forests that are claiming to be sustainable are actually sustainable. And Gabon is the first country to require that everyone meets that standard. So we've been trying to persuade them to include animals, which are obviously an integral part of forest ecosystems. If FSC wants to sustainably manage forest ecosystems, it has to have animals in its, in its criteria, in our view. Not the environmental chamber, which worries about the environment, but again, hasn't focused on the animals. And as you know, <laughs> I'm all about the animals. And exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Do you, um, does the 
FSC, do you think by having Gabon uh, adopt that, does that put pressure on its neighbors, Cameroon, Republic of Congo, Congo, DRC, others? They they really look at each other. And when one kind of goes, starts going down a road, the other start, there's this little bit of leadership guilt about like, yeah. maybe we should be a little more like our neighbor. It's, it's an interesting um, concept. And, and, and again, because FSC isn't a, a UN treaty or anything, it's it's individual companies saying we want to do the best we can and we're going to operate to these standards it's it's not it's not legal in the sense that a government will chastise them or or prosecute them for not following the standards and when you sign up to be an fsc member you have to follow the rules otherwise you're breaking that that contract and it's really the public that holds them to account so if a journalist investigates something to do with uh, timber extraction in an FSC concession and finds it's broken some rules, it's splashed all over the newspapers, it's really bad for FSC's reputation. So if you set yourself up as, as you know, the, the gold standard of forest certification, you, you better do it or else you'll be criticised and then your your name is tarnished. And, and I mean, the point we're making in, in our um, proposal for a motion to be adopted by the General Assembly, which then means, okay, we've all agreed on this. And to get a motion adopted, you have to have a a simple majority in each chamber and an overall majority of two-thirds. And the previous times we've had the overall majority of two-thirds and and 90-something percent support from the Environment Chamber and 80-something percent support from the Economic Chamber, but just under the 50 percent in the economic chamber, and, and that's really companies saying, hang on, we've agreed to this. You keep moving the goalposts, and that costs us money. And if we're going to be successful as a business, we can't keep taking on increasing economic burdens to meet the FSE certification. Um, but what we're trying to persuade them <laughs> is that actually, if you can stand up and say FSC is a cruelty free brand, it cares about animals. Well, the thing that's interesting also about FSC and is the fact that, as you you alluded to a minute ago, it the public is involved, and it's supposed to reassure reassure you when you buy your product that that this is from a well managed forest, and and if the companies haven't taken steps to prevent abuse of animals either through hunting or through capturing for the uh, illegal wildlife trade or, or for that matter for the legal wildlife trade, um, it, it damages the forest ecosystem if you take certain species out. And, and as this is a podcast to do with apes, um, obviously apes live in forests. There are FSC certified logging areas which have in, in Southeast Asia, gibbons and orangutans. And in um, Africa, obviously bonobos, chimpanzees uh, and gorillas. And you don't want FSC's name to be tarnished by bad things happening to apes, which are illegal. And the first line of any sort of FSC um, principle is that you obey the law. So you you, you cannot tolerate um, capturing or killing of apes or other protected species on your concession. But but laws in some countries, particularly in areas hundreds of miles from the capital where there's very poor enforcement, um, the timber company sort of has to almost act as, as a law enforcement agency, which they're not legally mandated to do. but under FSC, they sort of um, have to make sure that, that they are operating within the law. Um, and on the whole, it happens. Um, and, and 
those companies involved in logging in the Congo Basin will point to the fact that the species that a lot of the public care about, the apes, the elephants, the um, uh, the, the antelope, anything of bongo or or, uh, or sitatonga or or um, okapi, uh, all sorts of different interesting species that might be in a forest naturally. Um, if they are able to show using camera traps or um, surveys that those species are thriving in the forest, even though they're taking out a small number of trees using a sort of low impact logging method, then it should be reassuring to the public. Now, in his closing remarks, uh, or in one of his speeches, Lee, Lee White, Professor Lee White, Minister for the Environment uh, in Gabon, um, said he, he had a concept that Gabon's timber, he, he no longer, the, the country no longer allows the export of raw logs because that's sending the low-value raw material somewhere else and, and it even comes back to Gabon as made furniture. If you buy furniture, you want not just the wood from Gabon, you want the jobs in the factory that made the furniture to be in Gabon. That's their rationale. So now Gabon doesn't export raw timber. It's working on building a, a plywood factories and, and furniture factories to, to export high-value products. Um, and he wants there to be a, a sort of QR code on, on each product that when the buyer in a shop in America or in, in Europe or Japan or somewhere buys his product, they click on the QR code and you get taken straight to camera traps in the, the logging concession where the tree came from. And you can watch what passes by the camera trap and see that, that your certification isn't just independently certified by FSC, but you can actually see the animals yourself because of the the utilization of modern technology that's a, an amazing concept it is an amazing concept but i think it also addresses this need by the public i think you know the public is becoming more and more aware um of products in general and i, I think with the technology we have the opportunity to do Things like that, which just seemed a dream world twenty years ago, but now well, it, it, it um, certainly puts the the purchasing power of the public to the fore. And and there was a competition that Grasp organised for interesting ideas to help save apes. And and the the winner, I can't remember the person's name, forgive me, um, was um, someone who came up with the idea of an app, which would allow you while shopping to to point your phone or other device at the product and it would tell you the name of the company and whether they're using um, palm oil or not and if they are using palm oil whether it's from uh, certified sustainable sources so deforestation free palm oil now imagine how many if, if you're the ceo of a company and you start getting messages from people saying well i was going to buy your product but i can see no sign as, as to whether you're being careful with your procurement of your raw materials uh, or not, and therefore I'm not going to buy it until you can reassure me. That that's a really powerful tool for the well, consumer. A, absolutely, and it's you know it's interesting because you you and I have both been involved in in conservation for a very long time, and this has been putting putting the power in the consumer's hand has been something that we've talked about for decades, and but we we seem to now be at a in a place where we have these tools that can function globally 
that can actually show the consumer and In fact, you don't really impact. need an app for that these days. You look at the produce. Right, right. If you're not satisfied, you just send a tweet. And if you, you tweet the company, the, the, the media department of the company or the social media department will see the tweet. And, uh, and again, how many times do, do such tweets have to be retweeted uh, or, or such posts on, on Instagram or you know whatever social media channel you uh, platform you prefer? Um, they're very, very aware of their reputation. And it puts a huge amount of uh, positive power in the hands of the customer because, you know, there are certain products that, that you, you know you like, but suddenly you have to be aware of where they get their raw materials and whether it's cocoa, because obviously there's lots of cocoa grown in ape habitat. And I just bought some Gabonese chocolate, which is delicious. And I'm pretty confident that although the plantations must be on land that 100 years ago was rainforest, um, it won't be recent deforestation um, because Gabon is still 85% forest and wants to stay that way, um, but still to develop so that its population has a better standard of living. And you can't begrudge people wanting jobs and a better standard of living, but if it can be done in a way that keeps the ecosystem in, intact enough that it's providing the services we all need, and that's why it's important. And that's why this connection between apes and elephants and the climate uh, talks is so important. And I've been saying since 2007, I went to Bali um, at side events and in conversations with, with negotiators, if the health of the planet depends on the tropical forests continuing to sequester and store carbon, and the health of those forests depend on the keystone species, such as the primates and the elephants, that disperse the seeds and prune the trees and, and do all that they do, create light gaps, help the forest regenerate, then clearly the, the money that the developed world is offering to stabilize the climate doesn't just need to protect forests, meaning a lot of trees. It means to, needs to protect forest ecosystems, including the apes and the elephants. Uh, that are my particular interest, but if you're interested in tapirs and, and spider monkeys in, in Latin America, then of course those are the seed dispersal agents and the gardeners of the forest there. So hashtag gardeners of the forest um, is a, a theme I use throughout social media and on YouTube and my TED talk was about gardeners of the forest. And, and some people think, oh, is he still banging on about gardens of the forest? And I will continue <laughs> to bang on about them. Until... Well, I would like to, I would actually like to bang on about gardeners of the forest for a second because it's a half century almost since you met your first gardeners, which were, <laughs> which were a mountain gorillas in Rwanda. And, and I wanted to, since we, we've got a world, you know, World Gorilla Day coming up in a few days, and this is going to be the, the first podcast that we launch the new season, I wanted to talk a little bit about gorillas. And, and we've been talking about where I, I wanted to go with that conversation, with, with, which is how do they play a bigger role? I mean, we sort of think of them as, uh, I think the world thinks of mountain gorillas in particular as this sort of tourist attraction, but they, they're they much more than that. And I think looking back almost a half century, and and uh, you for those of you listening, you can't quite see this, but any any current picture of Ian will tell you he, he's sort of looking like a, a silverback himself at this point, or a silver beard, I guess. I, <laughs> yes. Um I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you got started with 
gorillas, but also how that experience and your experience over the years, how, how it's evolved over these 50 years. We're going to take a short break from Talking Apes. We'll be right back in a few minutes. You know, one of the things that's going on behind the scenes here at Talking Apes is trying to make this the best possible podcast we can make it for you. That starts with having great people working on it. And one of those is the newest member of the team, Demelza Vaughn. She's our new assistant producer, and I'd like to welcome her to the show. Hi, Demelza. Thank you, Jerry. Hello, and hello to all our lovely listeners. As you can tell, Demelza's got a bit of an accent. Um, <laughs> that's because since the pandemic, we're kind of spread out all over the planet, but I think it gives us a bit more of a global perspective on what we're doing with apes. And so it's really great to have you on board. Thank you. Yes, it's, uh, it's great to be here, and I hope people could understand my accent. I'm sure they can. Listen, we have. I know you have been working really hard with our uh, with our website development team and all the other people behind the scenes to to make the launch of season two an amazing one. Um, why don't you tell everybody what we've been doing? Yeah, that's right. So we're both really excited about this. We've just launched a brand new website for Talking Apes. Um, it's got a beautiful visual, new look. It features lots of Jerry's lovely photos from around the world. His adventures with apes. We've got a gorgeous new logo that I am absolutely in love with it is so cute um we've got lots of new features like a search option we've got gonna have blogs and we're gonna have teasers for upcoming guests oh no that's fantastic i'm really excited about the whole thing uh, the look of it is amazing and you guys have been really brilliant where can people share in how amazing this thing looks okay it's really easy just head over to talkingapes.org Okay, that's talkingapes.org, so they can find it there. You have also, I know, been really cranking on the social media side of things as a way to allow our listeners to engage with what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. It's really important to us this season that we try to connect a little bit more with our listeners and hear their voices. So this season, we have got a brand new Instagram account set up. You can find that at talking apes underscore podcast or we've got a new community group on facebook where we all get together and chat about primates and the podcast and you can find that by searching for talking apes podcast on facebook and um, what we want is for you guys to come over and send us a message or leave a comment and give us a review tell us what you thought of an episode tell us what your favorite episode was um or Give us a suggestion for a future guest. We just want to hear from you and we'd love to read out your comments on a future episode. Thanks very much, Demelza. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the work you and the team have been doing to make this an amazing new season two. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners. We love you and we really appreciate you. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. And now back to Talking Apes. What over the last starting with gorillas and then expanding from there, like kind of take us on that roller coaster of conservationists. I mean, you have seen and experienced maybe more than almost any human on this planet. It's true. I've been both at the sharp end of conservation, literally, <laughs> and and at the, the the highest levels of policy making of conservation and all stations in between. So, so I do, I do have a, a, an overview perhaps. You, you have a very unique 
perspective on it all because of all of that. And and that's what I would like to dig into a little bit, because I think, you know, most of us sit uh, in our armchairs and we see, you know, wonderful David Attenborough pieces or something by the BBC or National Geographic. And you've been a part of actually making some of those productions and and being the consultant or in front of the camera. Yeah, it's 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 an exciting phase we're in with increasing outreach to people and, and ways of informing them. Um, and and so the potential to do more good and get more things right, which we've sadly been lacking over the past 50 years, evidently. Well, the one, one of the things that we have gotten right is saving mountain gorillas. And, you know, you, you were there when it looked like mountain gorillas may not even survive yeah. to, today. I mean, we, we could have easily been talking with you right now about what it was like to see a gorilla and mountain gorilla and because they disappeared years ago, but that's not the case. So talk a little bit about your experience right there in the beginning uh, as worm boy from our first time we had a chance to talk. Um, and, but what what you learned from that, what you have learned since, and maybe walk us a little bit through what's happened with mountain gorillas and how that has expanded and applies to other species. And specifically, I'd love to get into forest elephants a little bit because forest elephants have a unique role on this planet. Yes. And- um, well, 50 years ago now, um, I think probably right now, I was hitchhiking across America as an eighteen as an eighteen year old. I worked in a summer camp, Camp Watito in in Massachusetts, and the Camp America scheme that I managed to wangle my way onto, younger than most Camp America counselors, um, uh, gave you two weeks at the end of the summer when the camp ended um, to to do what you wanted, and I just stuck out a thumb. Actually, I got a lift with another counselor from the camp who was driving west nonstop, and he dropped me off in Kansas. Um, and then I just kept going west. I thought, how far west can I get in one week and then turn around and head back? Well, I got to California. But I passed through Yellowstone. And Yellowstone in 1972 was celebrating its 100th anniversary. So the national park system, I, I, I purely by chance, I learned, started in 1872, um, and I guess Yellowstone this year must have celebrated its 150th um, because I can count. <laughs> so I worked that out. Um, but that, that, that sort of introduced me to the national park concept as first conceived in the USA, uh, which has then been applied all over the world, and which now is coming under a lot of criticism because by forcing people who live somewhere off their land where they've been for, for generations, thousands of years, and say, no, no, this is now a national park. Humans have to leave, except for those who can afford to come on holiday or who work here. It has protected a lot of natural habitats around the world, no doubt about it. But it's not enough. You know, countries aspire to have maybe 15% of their land area as protected areas, some of which are national parks, some of reserves or lower category. In Britain, where I am now, I live in the UK, and the national parks here are full of farmers and even mines. But the activities that they do within national parks, which are areas of outstanding natural beauty uh, and have ecosystems, some of them dependent on human activity, 
So if a national park was created because of the way the land has been grazed by, by sheep or cattle over thousands of years, that's how it has to stay. So the farmers stay there, but, but they, they operate under restrictions. But when the national park concept was applied to developing countries, it was people out, save it for the animals. Except in some countries, and, and the DRC, which we both care about a lot, was, was then the Belgian Congo. The Belgians in what was at once a sort of far-sighted ecological thinking and the other appallingly racist thinking considered that the pygmies were part of the forest. So they were allowed to stay. Well, that's, that's in one sense wonderful, but, but regarding pygmies who are, <laughs> are people like we are as, as animals in the forest is oh, very, it's difficult to conceive, but, but from our 21st century cultural lens, it's no good looking back and judging people on, on what decisions they were taking 100 and something years ago. But now we're going back to the idea that actually you know, indigenous people who manage the forests in, in traditional ways that don't destroy the forest are actually our allies in the fight against biodiversity loss, which is at least as an important an existential threat as the fight against dangerous climate change. So no one's thinking we go, should go back to that idea they're just animals and they're absolutely not. They're, they're wonderful people with rich cultures that, who we respect and, and who I find fascinating. Um, and they need to be part of the conservation solution. And that may mean that this idea that you kick them all out of the land so that the land is left pristine without human contact. You know, humans have been part of nature since we've, we are part of nature. There's no question of that. And the fact that many of us lock ourselves in little rooms and just have token bits of nature, like a plant in a pot behind me, <laughs> and pictures of nature um, and any other bits of biodiversity that come into the house, open the window and try and waft them out. Flies, wasps, spiders. No, this is human terrain. Get out. <laughs> Except for our pot plants and our pets. They're allowed in. And that, that separation from the what we, I suppose, perceive as, as the chaos of nature. Um, we, don't, we want our, our lives ordered and clean and, and free from other species, except for the ones we like. Um, that, that is a very recent and, in many respects, misguided view of, of what humanity is. Because for most of our existence, since we went on our separate evolutionary pathways from our cousins, the chimpanzees and bonobos, and a bit before that, the gorillas, and a bit before that, the orangutans, and a bit before that, the gibbons, the other apes just carried on in their habitat, living in a way which is entirely compatible with the ecosystem's survival. And we went off on this different path, which has led to industrial econ economies uh, and technology that allows us to have a conversation across oceans and, and land masses, which is extraordinary. We couldn't be having this conversation 20 years ago. I mean, it's extraordinary how technology enables this sort of thing to happen. But the raw materials and the devices that allow us to speak have come from nature. And speaking of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, that's where most of the world's tantalum is found. And tantalum is an important component in our mobiles and laptops because if you coat a capacitor with a fine tantalum powder, 
it can its properties are enhanced and it doesn't get too hot. So tantalum went from being a kind of obscure metal, heavy metal, um, on the periodic table that some people might vaguely remember seeing when they were at school, um, to something that we all carry in our pockets because we've all got some sort of mobile device that we talk to our friends on and, and we're using uh, devices which, which depend on this mineral. And that led us all to be implicated in the destruction of gorilla habitat in the east of the DRC. Much of it being done by organized criminal gangs who are armed militias and terrorists in the very real sense of they terrorize a village, kill a few people, do unspeakable things to others, and then round up some workers and force them to work in mines. Not mines with pit props and machinery, but holes in the ground with lump hammers and chisels and bags to get the heavy lumps of rock out that the crazy white people would pay really good money for. And that whole economy of, of getting minerals out of the earth that we want in our developed world and not being careful where it comes from. It's another reason why we need certification of minerals as well as timber. And it's coming. And there are efforts to, and I recently went with a, a couple of journalists from a British paper, The Mirror, uh, that wanted to do this story of the threat of our mobile phones and devices having on, on gorillas and, and where the conservation of eastern lowland gorillas is working, like in Cahuzibiega National Park in the montane sector, but in the lowland sector, because it's so big and, and difficult to patrol, there are still gangs of bad guys with guns trying to control the land, because you control an area of land, then you have control over the minerals and the timber and the ivory and anything else of value. And in those, I, I wrote a report in 2001 called Coltan Boom Gorilla Bust, because it did seem like the boom in coltan prices was leading to a catastrophic decline of the eastern lowland gorillas. Unfortunately, mountain gorillas don't live where there's coltan underground. They have other threats. But the eastern lowland gorillas are closely related, same species, eastern gorillas, because we no longer just think of mountain and lowland, we think of eastern and western. And in the eastern, there's a mountain, and the eastern lowland, and in the western, western lowland, and the cross river gorillas, those are the four subspecies. It's the eastern lowland that has a misfortune to live in forests that grow above deposits of coltan and, and other valuable minerals, including gold. Um, and so how do you, how does the world respond to that? You know, what is the system of certifying that the tantalum capacitor in my phone didn't come from child labor um, human rights abuses that, that you don't even want to read about um, and, and battles over turf by some of those military groups have political aspirations. Some of them are just bandits. And, and that's the, the second biggest tropical rainforest in the world after the Amazon, L largely within not, not just the DRC, but the other Congo and uh, Congo, Republic of Congo and, and Equatorial Guinea and Central African Republic and, and Gabon, Cameroon, all those countries that, that form the Central African Forest Bloc are essential to the stability of our climate. We are not going to win the, the fight against climate change without protecting the bulk of those forests. And if they're going to be exploited, it has to be done in a way that keeps them carbon um, 
sinks absorbing carbon and not starting to let off more than, than there is, which means protecting the gorillas. Now, gorillas are found in 10 countries, as you know, from, from Rwanda and southwest Uganda, westwards as far as Nigeria. The bottom right-hand corner of Nigeria, where it meets Cameroon, is where the Nigerian gorillas live, the Cross River gorillas. And they're only found in that little bit between Nigeria and Cameroon. But across those forests, um, gorillas play a role as keystone species. But they are also interdependent ecologically on forest elephants. Because in Cahuzibiega, where most of the forest elephants were killed during the 20 years of turmoil, coming up to 30 years of turmoil, it actually it really started to get very bad after the Rwandan genocide and the refugee crisis and hundreds of thousands, fact, millions of people fleeing Rwanda and living in camps, which became mini cities, hundreds of thousands of people strong, with no facilities except what the UN Refugee Agency could quickly put together. And, and then this sort of flux of, of competing interests. There are people trying to do conservation. I think some of the most courageous and, and inspirational conservationists on the planet, most of them Congolese, and a few of them. That's expats. true. I, I think that's an important point to to drive home Absolutely. too is that many many of those people and and we've if anyone who's who's been even remotely connected to that area knows how many rangers it's it's hundreds yeah. of yes. of wildlife rangers who are there uh, ostensibly to protect gorillas but other wildlife as well but have been literally gunned down by yeah because rebels. they're not just dealing with the occasional poacher who's setting a snare to feed the family or even a, a commercial poacher who's trying to kill an elephant and sell the tusks to a dealer they're dealing with armed militias <laughs> and it is it is very dangerous work um yeah i don't know there's so many stories i, I come to mind then um during some of the worst times um when militias were attacking rangers i happened to be in cohesibiega and i sat in on their monday morning meeting and you know a lot of companies get their staff together and have a Monday morning meet and talk about what their plans are, who they're meeting, what, what they're hoping to achieve and what didn't go right last week. And these people were saying, because there'd been an attack a few days before and some of their members were, were killed and some of the officials were killed. And they were saying, well, well, my family didn't want me to come to work today. But I came because I really care about this job. And you think, well, how many Monday morning meetings start with a, a a resolve to potentially face death at, at your work place of work because you think conservation is important. It really, it is, as I say, inspirational. And I count some of my oldest friends in Africa among those who, who do this. And when, when war breaks out or the, the terrorist attack and the, the expats, NGOs largely withdraw their staff for obvious reasons, for their security, the people who live there don't. They just uh, get on with it and, and survive as best they can. And uh, and they've lived through these terrifying experiences, uh, the equivalent to what Londoners lived through in the Second World War, in the Blitz, and what currently people in Ukraine are living through. Just unspeakable things, bombs falling on buildings and, and um, blocks of flats and apartments and being destroyed. And, and there it's, it's, it's 
sometimes much more basic. They don't have the technology to send guided missiles. They just send people with guns and machetes. And if you want to terrorize them, exactly. Well, since World War II, I think it's been called the deadliest place on earth is Eastern Congo. And yet here is, you've got this, you know, you've got this collision of, of incredible wildlife and under the ground, you've got, as you were mentioning earlier, some of the rarest minerals on earth. I mean, most Americans, for example, would be, I think, shocked to know that the the uranium for the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II came from the Congo. Yeah. So it's this isn't something that just started a week ago or last year or a few years ago. This has been going on for well over half a century um, that yeah. there's been a concerted effort to go after the riches of Eastern Congo. And, and yet you've got juxtaposed against that some of the most incredibly biodiverse places on Earth and some of the most iconic species on Earth. Many of your listeners will care passionately about the fate of the animals and and I hope also about the fate of the people. So I don't think you can be species-specific in your compassion. And I want people to care as much about other people as they do about other species. But I think we're we're kind of at a potential turning point because the world is realising that protecting these animals can't just be because they're nice. You know, a, a lot of my motivation comes from those early experiences at Kaisoki with Diane Fossey and the, the gorilla who's looking over my shoulder. Uh, that's a portrait of Digit by a British artist called Frank Lomas. I think it's wonderful. Um, when I eventually finished my biography of Digit, I'm sorry for all those who are still waiting for it, including my publisher. Um, I want that as a frontispiece. <laughs> I told Frank that. <laughs> we are spending time on podcasts well, like this and not writing. The death of Digit, who, when he was alive, sometimes did come and sit behind me and look over my shoulder as I was taking notes on the gorilla behavior, uh, was one of the motivations that pushed me from wanting to study gorillas into wanting to conserve them. And then 10 years later, the same thing happened with the elephants I was studying, the ones that go underground on Mount Elgin in Kenya, into caves to dig salt. Imagine elephants deep underground in total darkness, tusking the rock with their front teeth and then eating lumps of rock to make up the salt deficit in their diet. Amazing phenomenon. And 10 years after I stood beside the body of Digit, who had been decapitated and hands cut off because some dealer knew he could sell a skull and a pair of hands to some tourist or, or visiting foreigner who wanted a gruesome souvenir. 10 years after that incident, I stood beside the body of one of my study elephants, who I'd named Charles, Almost certainly it was Charles, but his face had been sliced off with a chainsaw to get his front teeth. And that pushed me into elephant conservation. And I've been trying to keep up with both spheres, conservation of apes, conservation of elephants, ever since. And, and trying to make stuff happen, largely down to the personal motivation of having got to know and, and, and trust and be trusted by a free wild animal who I was interested in and who it turned out in Digit's case was quite interested in me. And so we became friends. And I think that's not an exaggeration. I think it was an interspecies friendship. And when you've had an interspecies friendship, not based on dependency, he didn't depend on me for, for food like those in captivity do, or, or, or for, for anything other than just mutual curiosity and a recognition that in some senses we were kind of kindred spirits, both young males not yet found a place in the world and he didn't find his place in the world, he was killed. Um, so I've spent a lot of my 
time trying to ensure that he and his kind do have a safe place in the world. And, and when the same thing happened with one of my elephant study animals, it kind of pushed me off the research path and into the conservation path. And I guess if I had an ambition, it's to go back to just being a naturalist and studying animals and filming and photographing them for their own sake, but with a half-decent chance that the animals that I get to know are going to live their full life in the natural habitat. That's the big goal. And now, because of the climate crisis and, and also the linked biodiversity crisis, we have a chance to make that happen. Because instead of wanting to protect them just because they're nice and just because some humans have got to know them and, and recognize them as, as autonomous beings, you know, gorilla beings or elephant beings who arguably have a right to exist on our planet and a role to play in our planet's ecology, that's the key now. Because we have created this climate crisis and this biodiversity crisis so that we're getting close to ecosystem collapse. And if there's a point where we need the keystone species that hold ecosystems together, this really is it. So the UN declared this the, the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. And what do we mean by restoration? It, it doesn't mean humans planting trees. I mean, sometimes it does, but you have to be careful in the tree species that you plant, and you plant the species that will encourage the natural tree planters, the birds and the primates and the uh, ungulate, whoever eats fruit and swallows seeds or chews and spits out seeds, like orangutans do, the big seeds. Um, those are the ones you want in your human planted forests so that they take over. Humans sort of evolved doing some seed dispersal by eating. We eat tomatoes. <laughs> and we have it behind me, that's a seed dispersed avocado plant. I didn't swallow the seed and poop it out, but I did chew it and scarify it and then threw it in the compost. And, and later that summer, it had germinated. Now, animals are doing that all the time, every day. Hundreds or in some cases, thousands of seeds per day being spread around the forest. And most of them are just going to get to seedling and get eaten by something else. But some of them will grow to be the trees. And when you look in a forest today and you see these amazing rainforest giants, big emergents that stand above the canopy of the smaller trees, and it would take 10 people, arms outstretched, to reach around those. And you think, whoa, that huge organism is a result of a, an e e ecological event. When a seed dispersal agent might have been an elephant, or if you're in Latin America, it might have been a tapir or, or a, a muriki or some, some primate or a toucan took a seed that either swallowed it or, or chewed off the flesh and spat it out, and it landed and it germinated. It was one of the few out of the thousands that each tree produces every season that actually made it to adulthood. All the others were fed upon. And this is what's really interesting about this moment in time, because two years ago, um, three now, or three in 2019, an Italian biologist called Fabio Berzaghi published a study of two areas of the Congo Basin rainforest, one which still had a population of forest elephants and one which didn't. They've been extirpated decades ago. And Fabio found that the above ground biomass, the wood <laughs> and the leaves and the trees, was 7% more where there were elephants. So why are elephants making that difference? Well, he concluded, and he's subsequently done more research into this, uh, not only do they plant the, tr the trees, but they garden the forest. They're eating the small plants, 
the fast growing, you know, big tree falls and lots of fast growing pioneer species colonize that gap, rushing for the light. And that most of them get eaten by elephants. And then the elephants digest some of the nutrients out of it and, and the rest comes out in poo. Elephants produce a lot of dung. You called me the, the worm boy because that's what Diane put in her book. In fact, Diane called me Toto Yamavi, not Toto Yanyoka. And if you look it up in Swahili, you'll find that's the dung boy, not the worm boy. <laughs> but for some reason, she felt it wasn't appropriate in a book that she hoped was going to sell all over the world to have me nicknamed the dung boy. Or Which it has sold all over the world, less, and now you are the worm boy all over the world. Term. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, we, we in our Western clean world think dung is, is a, a problem. Get rid of it. But it's actually what makes the world go round. Anyway, Fabio found this 7% difference. Now, if you're looking at the, the gigatons of carbon that the Congo Basin possess, 7% of, of a gigaton is still a lot of carbon. And given that carbon uh, has a value now, because companies that can't yet get, get real zero are trying to offset their unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions by buying carbon credits. That potentially makes the work done by elephants worth a lot of money. It, it, looking forward into the next five to 10 years, like what, what you thought we, if there were a single thing that we need to think about in terms of how do we change the, the, the narrative around what we're doing on this planet, it almost sounds from that, we need to take the time to put the put the sort of ecological environmental value onto every species we can. I mean, if we've if this story behind a forest elephant, what is it what beyond tourism, what is a gorilla yeah. worth? What is a chimpanzee worth? What is Exactly. And and beyond tourism is a really important phrase because if tourists come and see your gorillas or elephants, that's fine. But if you're being paid for what they do, Tourists can come or not. That's like the cherry on the icing on the cake. And we've been focusing on the cherry and ignoring the value of the cake. Inspired by this idea of focusing on cake, my conversation with Ian turned into a longer and passionate discussion on the climate, value in carbon, and species diversity, with gardeners of the forest like gorillas and forest elephants at its core. You can catch that in part two of this Talking Apes podcast with Ian Redman. You've been listening to Talking Apes as we launch Season 2. We're the podcast that is dedicated to raising awareness about the magic and wonder of apes like us. Our goal, to create greater understanding about the threats that face apes and the importance of their ecosystems on which we all depend. Before we go, a quick reminder to check out the new Talking Apes website at TalkingApes.org. That's TalkingApes.org. And there you'll find back episodes, future guest lists, and a link to all of our social media. And while on the website, if you'd like to make a donation to Talking Apes, you can do so by clicking on the uh, little red button up in the upper right-hand corner. And of course, your donation will be tax deductible. I'd like to thank assistant producer Demelza Bond for her great work behind the scenes. And I'd especially like to thank you for joining us as we start our second season exploring the world of apes. For everyone at Talking Apes, I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening and enjoy part two of my conversation with Ian Redmond.